Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simone Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Karen Tkach-Tusman, Senior Editor. Steve Usden, Washington Editor. On today's pod, a neo-antigen vaccine report card. President Biden's executive order, which promises more drug pricing policies. And we'll talk to Steve about his commentary on the U.S.-China rivalry in life sciences, wrapping it all up with a trip to Simone's homeland to discuss what's at stake for biotech out of the U.K. economic turmoil. But first... Today's podcast is brought to you by the BioCentury Bay Helix East-West Biopharma Summit. It's scheduled for November 14th through 16th in Redwood City in the San Francisco Bay Area. There'll also be two bonus days of virtual one-on-one partnering meetings. This VIP event brings together U.S., European, and Asia biotech executives to debate globalization strategies. You can register to attend on our website, biocenturyeastwest.com. We hope to see you in November at the summit. All righty, a wave of readouts from companies. This half is shaping the next act for neoantigen cancer vaccines. Karen, you took a look at the space. What did you learn? Well, this is a space I've been following for quite a while now. Back in 2017, when there was a lot of high-profile fundraising for earlier stage companies, and you know, I took a look at the field, and there were just tons of companies going after neoantigens and cancer with new modalities. And to take a step back, you know, what's a neoantigen? A neoantigen is new protein epitope that arises and is presented to the immune system by cancer cells, but not by normal cells. And so that can arise from a mutation, something like a single nucleotide variant, but it could also arise from some other bigger rearrangements, et cetera. And the idea is that your immune system is trained to not attack self and tumors do a good job masquerading as self, but there are antigens that they express that because they have arisen during the uh, development of the tumor, they are non-self. And if you can really ramp up an immune response against them, you could help take on uh, the cancer. The field has shrunken uh, over the years as I've looked at it. In 2019, did a recap of what was going on in terms of clinical readouts then. And looking at it now, the space is even smaller. We've seen a couple of trends. One is that the DNA or RNA encoded modalities are really what has taken off. Peptides, all of those candidates have kind of fallen by the wayside, as well as some bacterial encoded modalities that had been present early on. But the biggest thing is that whereas the data in 2019 was primarily showing who was capable of mounting an immune response to these vaccines, Data in this half has shown some of the strongest links to clinical benefit for neoantigen cancer vaccines. And in particular, BioNTech data that came out at ASCO was a big sort of milestone along that because 
it made a really clear distinction showing that of the 16 PDAC patients treated just after surgery, after resection, and I'll get back to that in a bit, that were treated with their mRNA vaccine plus checkpoint inhibitor. The ones who had an immune response, the recurrence-free survival at median follow-up of 18 months wasn't reached, whereas the non-responders had a a median uh, recurrence-free survival of 13.4 months. And looking at that data even more closely, you can see that every patient that was able to mount an immune response had better outcomes than every patient that didn't. So that was a pretty powerful moment. Interesting stuff, Karen. You mentioned tumor resection. What are you seeing in terms of that as a disease area? Well, the thing about a, a tumor resection setting is that you've just gotten rid of a lot of the bulk of the tumor. And what you're trying to prevent at that point is recurrence. And so you're in this place where the, the tumor burden is low. And it seems from different data, the BioNTech data, but some other kind of data points as well that that early setting might be the place where these vaccines have a stronger impact. And it's something where we're also seeing that setting be highlighted in Moderna's upcoming data. So they have some data due this quarter via their partnership with Merck. And as you may have seen last week, the two of them re-upped their deal that has been going on since 2016. Specifically, Merck paid Moderna $250 million to exercise an option to jointly develop their candidate mRNA-4157. And so they are also looking in an adjuvant setting for a recently operated tumor there for melanoma. And it's something where talking to people in this space, there's a sense that the field is likely to gravitate into that direction. Earlier lines, lower tumor burden, in the maintenance setting, where you're trying to prevent the disease from really mounting up. So in, in that kind of setting, aren't you also going to be looking at much longer trials then because you're really looking at durability of response? That may very well be. And it'll be interesting to see for the Moderna data, what kinds of uh, timeline of follow-up that they have. Karen, can you just talk a little bit more about, you started with this, you know, shrinking field. Is that because this is requires specific expertise? Is it singularly difficult? Do people see it as risky? What's sort of going on there in your mind? Uh, or is it that people are kind of basically need somebody else to show proof of concept before they dive in. What do you think? Well, on one facet of it was there were a number of peptide candidates that were in the clinic and it all of those have fallen by the wayside. And it seems talking to people that the consensus is those were really good at inducing CD4 positive T-cell responses, but not so much CD8s, which are considered a big driver of the response. And it's interesting, the field at this point, I wouldn't call it super small. There's uh, six companies with active programs in the clinic. Interestingly, four of those six are European. And looking at the deal space, I will say there is a sort of steady march of deals. In addition to the Moderna one I mentioned, there's, for example, CureVax acquisition of Frame Cancer Therapeutics, also both European companies. 
for their neoantigen cancer technology. So I think it's something where the first wave players have winnowed down and are honing the direction they're going in, in terms of disease settings, et cetera. And then I think you do have an emerging newer wave of companies that are coming at it, maybe with different modalities or, and also with an expanded sense of what is a neoantigen. And that's something I'll be actually talking about in my next story. Right. So that's kind of interesting. Part of it is actually like the evolution of a field as they figure out peptides aren't really the best way of going about it. Then there's a sort of, you know, realignment or shuffling. So I, I guess, uh, well, we'll look forward to your next piece on this that will probably illuminate the upcoming innovations. Uh, yes, that that is the plan. And one thing to look out for, actually, in this space, with regard to the cancer vaccines that are in the clinic already, is the onset of randomized control trials. So, so far, you've generally had single arm studies. Um, Transgene actually had this neat sort of window into what a untreated control might look like because they had an arm that hadn't been treated yet. That arm was going to be treated upon relapse. And you saw two relapses in the untreated group of eight people versus the treated group also of eight people. So it's early days, but the Moderna data in particular, and Gritstone has some data coming up next year as well, will start to showcase in a randomized controlled setting what the differential effects of these vaccines might be. Karen's report is up on biocentury.com and uh, she's been following this clearly for half a decade and sounds like there's more to come. All right, let's turn to Washington. Steve, the White House is planning to use executive powers to reduce drug prices going beyond what is already in the Inflation Reduction Act. What's happening? So President Biden issued an executive order on Friday. In that order, he gave CMS 90 days to come up with actions that it can take independent of Congress to reduce the cost of drugs. The order is aimed at using the power created in the Affordable Care Act for CMS's Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, known fondly as CMMI, to test payment models. Look, the, the timing of the order seems political. It's less than a month from the midterm elections. Democrats are campaigning on the Inflation Reduction Act's drug price setting provisions, but the issue doesn't seem to be resonating with voters like Democrats had hoped. I think in part because the effects of the law, like a cap on out-of-pocket costs and caps on insulin costs, aren't going to kick in until next year. I spoke with three people Friday who have very relevant perspectives, I think. John O'Brien, who headed drug price issues at HHS in the Trump administration. Mark McClellan, head of the Duke Margolis Health Policy Center, who headed CMS when Part D was implemented. And Dan Mendelson, a former OMB official who started Avalier Consulting and now heads Morgan Health for JP Morgan. I should say John O'Brien runs the National Pharmaceutical Council. He said, basically, watch out for politics that are jammed through to meet political deadlines. Things don't often don't work out well. He should know because that's what happened with him and, uh, and the policies that he tried to put into effect during the Trump administration. Uh, McClellan said that he thinks that CMS is going to use the order to promote value and outcomes-based payment models. 
Uh, Mendelssohn said the same. Um, he also stressed about value-based payments, his advice that biopharma companies need to do a much better job of explaining the value of their products and doing so in ways that differentiate among payers, for example, between Medicare and employers. And all three of them agreed that Medicare Part B is likely going to be a target for CMMI models because the payment structure is so irrational, it promotes perverse incentives for increasing cost of care without necessarily improving quality. So we'll we'll have to see what comes up. It's also notable about the timing that 90 days, of course, brings it past the election. So the orders being given now, the White House and Democrats will say that they're going to do more to bring prices down, but we won't see what they're actually planning to do uh, until after the elections. So, Steve, um, I, I don't really want to say politics aside, because obviously you can't really put politics aside in this. But, you know, most of the time, historically, when anything has been touted about drug pricing, the biopharmaceutical industry says, no, no, the sky is falling. This is inevitably bad. Are the things under discussion inevitably bad? Are there opportunities here? Could you talk a little bit about that? No, they're not inevitably bad. And I think that the things that Mark McClellan talked about in particular would be good for everybody. The idea of finding ways to link prices to outcomes and to make coverage and pricing decisions more closely aligned with the value of products. It's good for everybody. Obviously, it's good for patients. It's good for taxpayers. And ultimately, it's good for biopharmaceutical companies because it creates incentives for them to create the kind of products that have the most impact. So we wouldn't expect necessarily to see a knee-jerk kind of rallying of the troops to oppose this. We don't know. You know, you, you don't know. And you don't know until you until you find out exactly what it is that CMS does. Look, somebody's going to oppose it because there's no way that you can have a policy that's going to reduce prices or reduce costs without hurting somebody, right? right. So whoever is is hurt by it, you can bet that they're not going to roll over and say, oh, that's an excellent idea. It doesn't ever happen that way. The question is, uh, you know, who's going to be hurt and how much and who's going to benefit from it? One of the problems that CMS has is that many of the things that would reduce costs and align coverage and pricing decisions more with value and with the outcomes could also hurt providers because, uh, especially if you look at Part B, the, the payments in Part B are add-on payments that are based on the price and volume of products that providers prescribe. So if you if you find ways to do things more efficiently or at lower costs, you could reduce the payments to providers. You know, if you're going to do that, there could be a, a an argument to say, well, you have to find some other way to make providers whole. If you don't do that, then you know your policy is really going to be fraught because you're going to have not only whatever drug companies are um, going to have reduced revenues fighting against you, but also the physicians that provide care and the hospitals that um, that employ them. And that's going to be very difficult. All right, Steve, you also wrote a commentary last week on why the U.S. and China should not allow rivalry in life sciences to turn into enmity that hurts patients. What prompted you to write this? 
basically looking at what's happening in Washington, there's a tendency to increasingly paint China as an enemy and to say that the U.S. has to not only excel in developing what the national security people like to call foundational technologies, but also that it has to do whatever it can to freeze or even roll back China's progress in those technologies. Standout example is the semiconductor industry, where the United States has launched a series of initiatives that are really intended to hobble China's progress in semiconductors. So I'm not expressing an opinion about semiconductor policy or saying whether that's good or bad, but what I do argue is that biomedicine is fundamentally different. And the problem is, is that if you look at the the rhetoric, the speeches that people give, the reports that that are being written by very influential people in the national security community, they very often pepper in the words biotech, synthetic biology, life sciences, biomedicine, along with semiconductors and telecommunications and other technologies. And they don't differentiate them. And what I'm saying is that they should. Basically, if China comes up with a new effective cancer therapy, it's going to help everyone everywhere. And one of the things I wrote, I said, look, ownership of an iPhone is not a human right, but in my view, access to life-saving, sustaining drugs is. There's no scenario in which China helping its people to be healthier hurts U.S. security. But actually, that's become a, a common idea that it is. This weekend, Politico ran a story after my commentary claiming that China or other countries may be ahead of the United States in developing intranasal COVID vaccines, which may be the case. But they also said that if that were the case, that it would be a potential biosecurity threat because it would lead to Chinese people being protected while the American population would suffer in lockdowns and other public health steps that would be non-pharmaceutical steps to prevent the, the spread of infection. There are really, really excellent arguments for why the United States should invest in developing novel vaccine technologies, but competition with China isn't one of them. So, Steve, you know, aside from the last piece that you just cited, let's just going back to the pepper, you know, <laughs> peppering uh, biomedicine and so on into these, do you think it's fundamentally a lack of understanding about this technology or, for example, an in-depth understanding of how genomic information is used and what it could be, rather than something that is directed at not wanting to see Chinese patients do better or get better. How do you think it's coming about? So I think there's two things. One is, I don't think that there's a lot of understanding, a deep understanding of the life sciences and of biomedicine in the national security community and the national security decision-making apparatus in the United States. I also think that there are legitimate concerns about Chinese activities, industrial espionage, cyber theft, human rights issues, and that the United States absolutely has to do more to help biopharma companies keep their data secure and to prevent anyone, including foreign companies, from compromising Americans' genomic and other health data. The problem is, is that it all kind of gets uh, merged together. And there's a danger that in thinking that there are some legitimate concerns and in legitimately thinking that biotechnology, biomanufacturing, synthetic biology really are the technologies of the present and, and even more of the future, that this all kind of gets mushed together and we get bad public policy. For example, 
really broad uh, restrictions on outbound investments, similar to the ones that are in place for semiconductors. And I think that that would be bad for everybody. It would be bad for the United States. It would be bad for China. It would be bad for the whole world. Thanks for that, Steve. And your commentary is up on biocentury.com. It's open access. So I invite you all to give a read of that piece on this very important issue. All right, Simone, let's head home. The UK is in turmoil and the life science community is working out what the economic meltdown means for the burgeoning biotech ecosystem in your homeland. You've been following the action. What's the lay of the land? Well, let me just explain why I focus on this. And this is important other than, you know, the mother country. It's not just a home of accents like mine. Um, but the UK has really got one of the fastest growing biotech hubs in the world. If you look at seed and series A financings, depending on how you look at it, it's either the third or one of the top five sort of after Boston and San Francisco. We've been following this for a few years. And, you know, the question always for a new hub, especially in a country that is outside of the U.S., is what storms can it weather? You know, how, how robust is that? And our colleague, Stephen Hansen, who has an American accent but lives in the U.K., he's the opposite of me, right? So he's been following this for a while. And in his story on Friday, he noted that the UK's burgeoning biotech ecosystem, as you call it, it's weathered Brexit, right? It, it actually had a, a lot of investment continue after Brexit. It has uh, weathered the Woodford demise. I won't go into that, but I will invite people to go and look at our coverage on, on that. Effectively, Woodford had invested in a lot of biotechs, there's a lot of exposure, and when he fell, biotech didn't. And now the whole country is upside down. And I'm a little hesitant to say anything because as we record this, Jeff, it is different than as it was when I woke up this morning, and I don't know what it will look like when I go to bed. But <laughs> we, we do know that the UK is in a lot of turmoil and economic turmoil. The pound is low and inflation is high. And for biotechs, it is a very high cost environment, both for direct labor and for supplies and running clinical trials, puts a lot of extra pressure on cash burn. Obviously, that is something that biotechs actually globally are facing with inflation. But in the UK, there's also the bond crisis, and that's affecting the risk appetite for UK pension funds. Now, why is that important for biotech? Because this is something that the life science sector for years has wanted to change Pension fund managers have historically seen venture as high risk and illiquid. And this is what Stephen's reporting sort of indicates. So there is a lot of risk there. But he also talked to people who think it could be an opportunity for change. So Steve Bates, who is the head of the BIA, which is the Industry Association for Biotechs in the UK, he thinks that this whole tumult is the word I think he used demonstrates the need for UK pension fund reforms. And he says the Bank of England's intervention supporting pensions, he says, makes in plain sight the argument we've been making for a long time, that the way pension fund money in the UK is allocated is out of kilter with the needs of pensioners. 
and uh, Tim Haynes from Abingworth also sees this as an opportunity for the sector to showcase life science ventures to UK pension funds as a relatively low-risk investment compared with other complex instruments that they're investing in. So, you know, I think that that urgency is going to stay. I, I don't know what's, <laughs> what is in the the new chancellor, well, the new chancellor as of this weekend, <laughs> Jeremy Hunt, um, in, in his sort of, I think it's a U-turn still, but some people call it other things, different shaped letters, I suppose. Um, so I don't know what's what's still there and what isn't there, but I think that that issue is something we're going to continue to address, which is what does this mean for the UK biotech ecosystem? Most people right now think that it is not a threat that these companies will be able to weather it. And, you know, I think the question is really how many will survive and are there actually opportunities for systemic reform in some of the financial instruments that could actually benefit biotech? Well, thanks for that, Simone. We look forward to chatting again next week. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google. Our friends at Kendall Square Orchestra provide the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.